Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Um, I have the honor this morning of introducing our preacher for us this morning to you. Uh, This is a very special morning for me. It's a very special morning for Mercy Church. Um, This little guy right here beside me is uh, Jake Greer. Um, Jake is our executive director of ministries here at Mercy Church. Uh, He came on our team in September of 2019 and uh, came to really help provide just a lot of the the organization and leadership to our team that uh, we knew we needed as our ministry was growing. And man, has uh, (laughs) y'all has been such a gift uh, to me. Uh, This past 18 months has required more out of me, your lead pastor, than ever before in my own leadership uh, and more of a a gap that I've realized that I'm trying to grow in. And then, you know, Jake comes on to do ministry and he's here for just enough time to figure out where everything is. And then, of course, uh, you know, COVID shuts everything down, right? And we got to pivot and everything else. And I just want you to know, um, this man has been a incredible gift to you. Uh, no matter how much you have seen him, you haven't seen him much because he's been the guy uh, behind the scenes, platforming everyone else and ensuring that ministries uh, thrive and grow. And um, yet at the same time, not only has the Lord gifted him uh, very much in building uh, church ministries, but also uh, gifted him as a preacher and a shepherd. And you're going to see some of that uh, this morning. Uh, but he is, above all, for those that are close to him, you know he is a... Um, he is such a servant of others, and this man loves the Lord, and the love of the Lord just comes off of him. And as close as I've been to him the past couple of years, I've seen that so much, and I'm so grateful. Uh, so he is going to be preaching as we continue our Ruth series and has a word that he's been preparing for a while that I'm so excited about and been able to walk with him through it. So will you join me in welcoming uh, to our pulpit for the first time, uh, Jake Greer. Uh, all right, man. Well, good morning, Mercy family. What a joy it is to be with you this morning. Um, what a privilege to have this pulpit. I don't know if that's what this call, is called or not, but uh, what, it, what a privilege it is to be able to have this opportunity. I'd love to just go before the Lord uh, before we get into his word uh, because I want to thank him for this opportunity for me, and I want to plead with him to be with us. So let's go to the Lord. God, thank you so much for the gift of this opportunity. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for Ruth, too. Uh, Thank you for Mercy Church. Uh, God, I'm in awe of the opportunity to share this word with this people today. And God, I need you. I need your presence. I need your words. Lord, this is your word that I get to share. Um, 
So speak through me, speak to me. Um, I love you, I trust you. Would you go with me? In your name, amen. All right, so I don't know about you, but growing up, I've always struggled with the idea of the one. I'm talking about like the soulmate. I think for me, it's been a challenge, not because I didn't believe in love. I've, I've always loved love. I think for me, I've remained a skeptic of this notion that there's one person that you're destined to be with. I think it's because I struggle, my analytical brain struggles to wrap itself around this idea that all of these universe aligning moments that have to happen at the exact same uh, at the exact same occurrence, just so you can have the moment to meet your true love for the first time. Not to mention the many other course corrections that have to take place to ensure that this new and fragile relationship isn't crushed by the footsteps of doubts and failures and poorly handled conflicts or misinterpreted moments where you're like, yeah, but I didn't mean to ignore that text for one whole day. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems hard to believe that God would set it up that way. Maybe I've struggled to believe that he could. Maybe I struggled to believe that he would. I think if I'm honest, I just struggled to believe that he would have wanted to, to spend his energy and time orchestrating all these little moments just so one person could meet another, just so two people could find love or be provided for. Maybe he'd do it for somebody else, but not me. Why me? I'm just a regular guy. Now, while I still don't claim to understand whether there is the one or not, I do know with absolute certainty that God provided my wife, Meredith, to me. She is in every way a gift. She is God's provision to me. I can see that now as I look back in the rearview mirror. God's provision is like that, you know. Sometimes we can see it clearly, uh, we can't see it as clearly looking forward as we can when we look back. The, the provision of God is often in the windshield, it's the miraculous moments. This is the parting of the Red Sea type moments. This is how we think of God's provision. But today's story isn't full of windshield provision. Today's story is full of rearview mirror provision. We get to see in the story of Ruth God's provision in the simple, common, and ordinary moments of simple, common, and ordinary people. Today's story has some things to say, not just about love, but about the creator of love itself and how he sometimes works. My hope is to challenge all of us to begin to ask ourselves in the ordinary moments of our lives, how does God want to provide to and through me today? Last week, our brother Joseph preached on Ruth chapter 1, and man, he brought the word. If you haven't heard that, go back online, check it out. That brother can preach. We learned about a woman named Naomi who, in the wake of a famine, fled in search of rescue to the foreign land of Moab with her husband and her two sons. We saw how death hit Naomi's home and left her not just a widow, but a mother who outlived her only two sons and found herself broke, broken, and bitter. Upon returning to her home, she self-proclaimed, Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, for I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The author of Ruth then ended chapter 1 very strategically with a key statement. Ruth 1.22 says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
This is a glimmer of light, of hope. In the midst of the darkness surrounding these two women's lives, the context of the opening of chapter 1 was famine, and the context of the closing of chapter 1 was harvest. And that brings us to Ruth chapter 2. This is scene 2 in the storyline. These two widows are now in Bethlehem, which is known as the city of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest, which if you don't know what barley is, all you need to know is it's used in bread. And here's what happens. It's around springtime at the beginning of the barley and wheat harvest in Israel. Ruth and Naomi find themselves poor and with no real way to earn money. Ruth tells Naomi that she's going to go out into the field and glean from the edges. Now, in this agrarian context, gleaning was a normal practice where someone, usually a poor or a homeless person, would pick up the scraps of the crop that were left behind the workers on the outskirts of the farm. This was not easy work and likely wouldn't yield a lot of bread, but it was a start. Anyways, she ends up in a field owned by a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz, apart from having an awesome name that means strong, is going to be a crucial character in the lives of these two women. And the, and the author of Ruth tips us off that he's significant by opening the chapter with a brief introduction of him. But the story continues. Ruth is diligently gleaning in the field when Boaz shows up on the scene. When Boaz sees Ruth, he asks his workers about her, and they tell him, in verse 7, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. You see, word had spread of this story. Moab wasn't exactly a place that you wanted to be from, and Naomi had come back much differently than when she had left. Boaz proceeds to bless her and invites her to continue to glean from his field under protection from the young men. Now listen up, men in the room. Sometimes you may need to be like a man named Strong and protect the young women around you from the young men around them. Amen. That one's for free, ladies. <laughs> so anyway, shocked by his kindness, Ruth asks him, why me? And he tells her, Al, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We're starting to see the story turn a little here. As a side note, go Ruth. Gosh, I can't imagine working that hard in that type of environment for such a small amount of barley. I mean, I like carbs, don't get me wrong, but I don't think I'd be willing to work even half as hard or half as long for a full loaf of my wife's Dutch oven bread. Mm. Mm. All right, back to reality. The story continues. Boaz ends up not just blessing Ruth with a full meal at his table, but he actually tells his workers, hey guys, let her continue to glean, but also leave out some of the bundles that you've put together for her to pick from. Now we're starting to see a little bit of the kind of man that Boaz is. Well, Ruth ends up working past sundown, and returning home late in the evening with enough barley for two weeks' worth of eating. And her to-go box from Boaz's kitchen with food for Naomi. Now, remember Naomi? Yeah, the mother-in-law who renamed herself Bitter. So she sees her, she sees Ruth coming up with all this bounty that she has in tow. And she asks Ruth, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Fair question, Naomi. 
I can't help but think that Naomi's got to be like, what in the sweet yellow barley harvest happened? (laughs) Maybe not. But nonetheless, Naomi is surprised. But little does she know what's coming next. Ruth tells her that she was gleaning in Boaz's field. Now, Naomi knows that Boaz was a family member of her late husband, Elimelech. She also knows that based on the laws and customs of her people, he could play a significant role in the turning of her and Ruth's circumstances. So the same woman that just a few short verses ago blamed God for her hardships is starting to see things turning around. And she acknowledges that this is a kindness from the Lord. Just like last week's chapter closed with a glimmer of light, it was the beginning of the barley harvest, peeking through Naomi's dark circumstances, this chapter too is ending with a little more light shining in on these two women's lives. The second scene of the book of Ruth ends with Naomi encouraging Ruth to take Boaz up on his offer to continue to safely work his fields. And the chapter concludes in verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Church, there is so much packed in this story. The Bible is awesome. Like, seriously, you should read it every day. It's got something new. What I'd like to do is pull out some observations from this chapter that I think can help us to shape how we see God's provision at work to and through us. This will help us answer that question from earlier that I said I wanted to start asking, which is, how does God want to provide to and through me today? First, let's talk about God's provision to us. Then we'll move into his provision through us. While I think that there's a lot that we can pull from this story about God's provision in our lives, I want to focus in on three characteristics of God's provision to us. First, God's provision to us is sovereign. Look with me at verse 3. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Church, the author here is using irony to make a point. The word happened is like saying chance on chance or as luck would have it. But don't let the author's use of irony get past you. This is God's word. God breathed this word. God is behind this moment. Make no mistake, the same God that took the dust and formed a man breathing life into his nostrils, the same God that knows the count of hairs on your head today, even if it's zero, the same God that works all things according to the counsel of his will, the same God who used the verdicts of Herod and Pilate to bring about the death of his own very son, that God was behind this moment in Ruth's life. She didn't happen upon the field of a kinsman redeemer because of chance. She happened upon the field of a kinsman redeemer because of the great redeemer's hand. And God's provision is about to come to her. If God's provision to us is sovereign, he is behind it. What moments in your life might later be written as she happened to fill in the blank? He happened to take that exit off the highway on his way to Tennessee. Or she happened to come to Mercy Church on May 16th. Make no mistake 
God can change your life today. As a matter of fact, we expect God to change a life today. Our God is sovereign, and with him, things don't happen to happen. He's in it. God's provision to us, to me, to you, whether in the simple or the small, is sovereign and intentional. Secondly, God's provision to us comes from work with faith. Let's look at the character of Ruth. She's a young, single woman who's immigrated to a new land. She left everything for her mother-in-law. Now, in our underdog world, we don't see an, we look at Ruth and we think, man, she deserves a break, right? But we don't see an ounce of entitlement in her. We don't see any idleness in Ruth. Her and Naomi get to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, and she's like, let's go, put me to work. Ruth is a doer. She's not sitting around waiting for a freebie, but she's also not just a doer. She's full of faith in her new God. When she says, let me go to the field in verse 2, she also acknowledges that she needs favor. Little does she know just how much favor she will find. She left her family, her people, her gods. She gained so much more. You'll see. Stick around for the rest of Ruth. But let's not miss her faith as she steps out to work. It seems like Ruth knows what Jesus' brother James would teach thousands of years later, that there's really no real faith without works. True faith is evidenced by what we do. If God's provision often comes from work with faith, then I think we have to take a hard look at where we are hoping or wanting God to provide and make sure that there's action that proves that desire. Expectant action for us might not look like gleaning in a field in order to eat this evening. It might rather look like applying to five jobs while asking the Lord to provide the one we really want. Or digging into God's word consistently each day despite not feeling him knowing that we ultimately need him to pour out his presence on us. Or being generous and good stewards with the little money that we think we have now while we're waiting on God to help grow our wealth over time. I don't know what it is for you, but wherever you're wanting God's provision, ask yourself, ask him, what should you be doing to demonstrate and authenticate your faith in his provision to you? Now let's move on. The last characteristic of God's provision to us is that God's provision to us is for the humble. Now, not only is Ruth a hard worker who knows that she has to work to eat, but she's humble about it. She doesn't presume that anyone will be generous to her. There's an awareness of her position that makes Ruth a great candidate for mercy. She's humbled, she's vulnerable, she's helpless. But don't mistake her humble circumstances for weakness. This is a strong, humble woman that bows. This is a strong woman that works without a break. This is a strong woman that works in the field until it's evening and then beats out the barley, two weeks worth of barley that she's been gleaning all day. But Ruth does all this not for herself. No, she does this for her mother-in-law, bitter. I don't know about you, but if my wife died and my mother-in-law changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to bitter, which means, or to Mara, which means bitter, then I would probably be like, yeah, I'm going to change my name from Jake 
which means supplanter, to adios, which means goodbye. <laughs> Ruth is humble. <laughs> She's loyal and a faithful servant. The thing about Ruth's humility that I think really challenged me when I was studying this text was that while she has a humble set of circumstances, being widowed, being poor, being a foreigner, she also walks in humility. I think for us, this is the challenge. We all have some humbling circumstances. If you don't right now, you will at some point. But having humble circumstances isn't the same thing as walking in humility or being humble. The scriptures have a lot to say about God's perspective on the humble. Things like God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. So whether you feel humbled by the job you have right now, the role that you play in your family, or the circumstances around you, know that God's provision is for the humble, those that walk in humility. Here's what I love about the story of Ruth. It is so easy to relate to. We don't see what would be considered a miraculous provision to Ruth. God doesn't just rain down a bountiful load of barley that's already beat into flour. No, God uses ordinary circumstances with ordinary behavior to provide for Ruth and for Naomi. Check this out. God's got something to provide to us, yes. But he's also got something to provide through us. Listen, church, don't let this slide by. God uses people. There are two people in this story. While Boaz may have an awesome name, he's just a regular guy. He just is a business owner that owns a farm. The thing, though, to note about here is that Boaz doesn't see the business that he owns as if it was his. When he blesses Ruth and says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and when he tells her that she will find shelter in, the wings, in God's wings, he isn't washing his hands of responsibility. No, he's taking ownership. Boaz's theology convinces him that it is his responsibility to carry out God's provision. He doesn't think of his ability to provide for Ruth and God's blessing over her as separate things. I think for us, this is huge. If we want to begin to answer the question of how does God want to provide through us, we have to change our perspective on all the things that we think are ours. If God is the provider to us, then he is also the provider through us to somebody else. Let's take a look again at the story and see what God's provision through us might look like. First, God's provision through us protects the marginalized. The story of Ruth and Boaz's field is a story of the marginalized. Our God loves those on the margins. He loves widows and orphans and the poor, the discouraged, the sick, the lonely, the discarded of society, the failures, all too often, the people that we reject are the ones that God chases down first. You see, there was a law that the people of Bethlehem would have been expected to follow that would have provided for Ruth. God wrote into the statutes for his people, called by his name, that they must leave room for the poor. As a law-abiding Israelite in this time, letting the homeless or the traveler glean wasn't just acceptable. It was expected. It was law, God's law. Look with me at Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. 
neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Ruth is a young foreign widow working alone with no community to watch over her. She's vulnerable. But Boaz doesn't look upon her weakness as something to exploit for his own gain. No, he doesn't even look at her weakness as something to ignore and let somebody else deal with. Have you ever done that? I know I have. No, no, no. Like our Lord Jesus, he looks at his own resources, his own position, and his own power as something to be used for her gain. Like our Lord, he provides. Like our Lord, he protects. Mercy, this is the heart of God. If you want to know how God wants to provide for you or through you, go to the margins and look for someone who's gleaning. God's provision through us doesn't just protect the marginalized, though. It's also characterized by generosity. Is Boaz a stingy business owner holding on to every last piece of his profits? No. Is Boaz a man who knows the law and follows it right up to the T? No. What we see in Boaz looks a lot more like our Jesus. We see a generous man. We see a man that doesn't hold too tightly to his resources as if they were his in the first place. We see a rich man that doesn't look at his profits as something that only he should benefit from. I mean, Boaz has run a successful business in the middle of a famine. That's something to be noted. But don't miss this, church. I love this part of the story. Ruth doesn't just find the food that the law required her to find. She doesn't just find a nice farmer. No, she finds a generous farmer who provides water to drink, protection from the young men of his own field. Listen, she finds a meal with leftovers to take home. She finds a kind business owner who actually tells his employees to take the harvest. He has paid them to yield and has them set it aside so she can pick from it. This is crazy. Make no mistake, God is providing to Ruth. But he is doing it through Boaz. And he's ensuring that she has more than enough. God's provision to others often comes through us. So we have to ask ourselves some hard questions to see how are we allowing God's provision to work through us. I think to do this, we can ask ourselves three basic questions. What do we have? What needs are around us? And how does God want to use what we have to meet those needs? So business owner or boss, how are you leveraging the business or the position that the Lord has given you to provide generously for the needs of others? What if instead of keeping all the profits for yourself or for your business, you found creative ways to reward your hardworking employees over and above what the market expects, generously sharing your profits with them? Do you see your business as yours? Or do you see it as God's business that you've been tasked to steward? Stay-at-home parent. How are you using your time with your kids to let God provide to them through you? What if you saw the hours you have with your kids this summer not as a burden you have to carry until school starts back up? Lord willing, it does. 
but instead as opportunities to share God's abundant love for you with them. Leveraging this time to shepherd their hearts and cultivate their minds to become followers of Jesus. Charlottean, how are you seeking to serve the marginalized of our city? What if you and I saw our abundance of time, money, skills, energy as means to provide for the orphan, the refugee, the homeless, or the trafficked? What if God's provision to these groups is supposed to come through you or me? Empty nester, single person, husband, wife, teacher, student, neighbor, pastor. How are you letting God provide to others through you? What do you have? What needs are around you? And how does God want to use what you have to meet those needs? Here's the thing about God's provision that I think we can learn from the book of Ruth. It's not just in the big moments, the miraculous moments that God provides. It's in the small and ordinary moments, too. I think that part of the reason that it was always hard for me to believe in the one, you know, the soulmate thing from earlier, is because it's hard for me to believe that God is at work in the ordinary. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to see ordinary moments as God moments. It's hard for me to see ordinary moments as God providing to or through me. But in the rearview mirror, I can see how God provided exactly who I needed in a wife. And I can see a little of how he did it. He orchestrated each little moment. The scholarship that led me to a college in Oregon. The family crisis that led Meredith to break up with her other boyfriend. (laughs) My new best friend that happened to like her best friend. The fact that I couldn't afford to go home for Thanksgiving, and so I went to another Thanksgiving meal as a wingman with a friend, only to find myself falling in love with his girlfriend's wing woman. There's a lot going on there. Now that the story is written, though, I do believe wholeheartedly that God provided to me through ordinary and simple moments. And now that the story of Ruth is written, We can see in the rearview mirror how God provides to Ruth and to Naomi and ultimately to you and me. As we continue this series in Ruth, we'll see more of God's provision. And church, this story of Ruth ultimately leads to another story, another rearview mirror moment where we can see God's provision at work. It's a moment a couple thousand years later in that same town where Ruth was gleaning, in an ordinary stable in the town of Bethlehem, to another young woman named Mary, a baby was born. This baby, though ordinary in many ways, would live an extraordinary life. This baby's name was Jesus, and he is the greater Boaz. Listen, Boaz's name means strong. Jesus' name is a strong tower that the righteous run to and find safety. Boaz's presence led to Ruth bowing. One day, Jesus' presence will lead to every single knee bowing. Boaz, the barley farmer, provided a meal and sent Ruth home with leftovers. Jesus turned a young boy's five barley loaves 
into enough bread to feed over 5,000 people, and then his disciples packaged up 12 baskets of to-go bread. Boaz shows kindness to a poor woman on the margins of his field, and Jesus would proclaim a gospel news to the poor, liberty to the captive. He'd give sight to blind. He would heal the sick and free the oppressed. Boaz, in this story, will eventually redeem the foreign Moabite woman, Ruth. And he'll take her as his bride. Jesus will eventually redeem people from every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. And he'll clothe this multitude in white and take her, his bride. God's greatest act of provision was Jesus. So if we want to answer the question, what does God want to provide to or through me, we need not look further than Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for providing your son to us. Thank you for the humility of Ruth that sets an example that shows us what we're like, desperate, seeking provision on the margins. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, I pray that this word would change hearts. I pray that it would change my heart. God, help us to be more like you. Help us to be like the greater Boaz. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. Thank you for this story. In your name we pray. Amen.